Acts chapter 6. I just want to read the first seven verses for you. Luke writes for us, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicodor, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number, and the And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As we come to God's word uh, this morning, let's come before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Your word so clearly teaches us who you are. And in light of that truth, teaches us what you want from your followers. So this morning, Lord God, as we unpack this passage in Acts chapter 6, I pray that you would speak to us, convict our hearts, transform our minds, make us more like Jesus. For we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, back in 2011, I was in the States doing research for a doctorate. And uh, I'd take my family with me and we were flying from... Uh, San Jose in California to New York, uh, where I had to interview a group of people as a part of my research. And uh, as I was uh, on the going onto the plane, Google had just released Google Chrome. And so they had a special offer going that you could have a laptop for free and, and use Google Chrome for free on the fly as long as you returned the laptop at the other end. And so I, I asked, you know, is, is, is it available for my daughter who was five at the time as well? And they said, yeah, she's welcome to one as well. And so we went on, on the flight and I sat next to my daughter and she opened the laptop, turned it on and then started to press the screen and swipe the screen and turned to me and said, Daddy, my, my, my computer's not working. You see, up until that point, she'd only ever used the iPad. She'd never used a laptop. It's amazing to think that there's a whole generation growing up now, she's now 11, who doesn't know life without the internet, that don't know life without computers, that don't know life without touchscreen technology, that don't know life without microwaves even. Our world is changing so, so rapidly. Over my lifetime, we have seen enormous change. We have seen the rise of information technology. Uh, this is from um, McCrindle. Now, I'm sorry that that's so small, but let me just point out a few things to you on that graph. If, if you can't see that, the timeline goes from 1997 to 2017. 1997, Google was, was registered only in 1997. You know, I, I was chatting to the leadership of Menai Baptist Church, my church, 
And, and I uh, pointed out to them that Google was only registered in 1997. And I said, think back to 1997 and how we did church here in 1997. And think back, think now to today and what has changed in that 20 years. And, and, and one of the leaders piped up and said, well, Hillsong. I said, well, you know, Jeff Bullock was around in the late 80s. Shout to the Lord was written in the early 90s. You know, Hillsong was well and truly on the scene before 1997. And so they racked their brain a little bit more and we figured out that in 1997 we used overhead projectors where today we use data projectors, but that's it. That has all that has changed in our church in the last 20 years. We use a data projector rather than an overhead projector at the moment. 2007, the iPhone came out. Friends, to me, that is a game changer. A huge game changer. Now, I know you tech heads out there will tell me there were smartphones before the iPhone. I get that. But the iPhone was the first time that lots of us had a personal computer in our hands. We have got all the information and all the opinions we could ever want in our hands right now. That is a game changer. And that happened in 2007. Uh, in 2016, the Tesla battery was invented. And I don't know much about this, but they tell me that when this becomes mass-produced, that will change how we, we store uh, energy, will change our lives completely. Over the last 20 years, we have seen massive change in information technology. But during our lifetime, we've seen social upheaval as well. We've seen the rise of feminism and LGBTI rights, as well as last year we saw same-sex marriage legislation come through. Friends, that has changed how our view, how our society views relationships, how our society views marriage, how our society views family. There's been a huge shift in our worldview as well during that time. Once upon a time, modernity was how we viewed the world. You know, science could teach us everything about the world. There was absolute truth. We just had to discover what that truth is. But in the last 20, 25 years, we've seen a massive shift to post-modernity, which now says all truth is relevant, relative, sorry. All truth is relative. You know, what might be true for you is not necessarily true for me. In fact, I believe we are now coming into an era which is post-post-modernity. You know, with social media and the 24-hour news cycle, it's a new battleground out there, friends. My truth is only valid if I can destroy your truth. That's what I reckon is happening in our society right now. And that's why you see people coming at Christianity. And that's why you see people coming at the church. There's been a massive shift in our society over the last 20 years. And for the church in the West, this is having serious ramifications. Within a generation, the church that was once at the center of our society and its moral compass is now finding itself more and more and more on the fringe. Here's some more statistics from McCrindle Research. Since 1971, Christianity has declined 22% in our country, 22%. Church attendance has declined 48% since 1971. That is actually a statistic that's a lot worse when you consider the population growth that we have had in this country and the fact that immigration has meant there's a whole lot of ethnic churches out there 
that are propping that number up. But 48% decline in church attendance. People who are saying they have no religion at all has grown by 269% in that time. And friends, it's a concerning trend. You know, while over half of our population still identify as Christian in our country, less than 8% come to church regularly. And do you know what we mean by regular attendance? Once a month. That's what we determine to be regular attendance. Less than 8% of our country are coming to church at least once a month. It's a concerning trend, friends, and there's no end. And for the most part, we as a church are just sticking our head in the sand hoping that things will change. They're not changing. They're not changing. But fortunately for us, back in the first century, the church was seen as an irrelevant sect of a Jewish religion in a backwater country of Israel. It was not relevant at all. And yet within three centuries, within three centuries, it had become the state religion of the Roman Empire, perhaps the greatest empire of all time and it would dominate our social political context for the next 1600 years so friends if you are feeling more and more marginalized and if you're feeling more and more irrelevant as a church there's no better place to go than acts and read how the early church handled what it meant to be irrelevant in their society and that includes acts chapter 6 so if you have your bibles with you you may wish to keep them to acts chapter 6 And the passage starts off with this dilemma. The early church has attracted so many widows that they don't know how they can continue to serve them. Now, let let me be very, very clear here. I don't mean to be offensive to widows today. You need to understand in first century, if you were a widow, you were in deep, deep trouble. It meant that your husband, not only had your husband passed away, but you had no sons to look after you. There was no way, there was no social security. There was no way you could look after yourself if you're a widow in the first century. And, and the church had attracted so many widows that they couldn't keep up with the demand of looking after the widows. And, and that's because, friends, of this simple truth. Jesus and the early church always attract the marginalized. Jesus and the early church always attracted the marginalized. He sets a pattern for us in his public ministry in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. This is what he says in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. In Luke chapter 4, that is Jesus' first public statement about what he's going to be on about, what his mission's going to be on about. You know, Obama said, yes, we can. Trump said, let's make America great again. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is what he's on about, to set, to proclaim, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And we see that, don't we, right throughout his ministry. We see that. He looks after the poor, the marginalised, the sick, the oppressed. And that last phrase is particularly interesting. 
and it really helps us place the other verses into context for us to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That actually refers back to the year of Jubilee, a year that was placed into the the Israeli uh, calendar that every 50 years all debts were forgiven. Everything was restored. Everything was reset. And people can continue to live. Uh, Slaves were set free. Everything was reset. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I've come to reset everything. I've come to restore everything. I've come to reconcile everything to myself. And who needs uh, that restoration or reconciliation the most? The poor, the blind, the prisoner, the marginalised. I, I, during the week, I listened to uh, Monty's sermon, a fantastic sermon. If you weren't here last week, go online and listen to his sermon. And if you were here last week, go online and listen to his sermon again. Uh, it's just a great, it was just a great sermon about how we need to shift our thinking about what God is doing on this earth now. We need to shift our thinking and not wait until we die and stand before the judgment throne, that we can be a part of God's kingdom right here, right now, that we can be planting gardens everywhere, that we could be spreading God's love. That's what this passage is about. Jesus was on about it. He was on about the marginalised, the poor, the oppressed, the sick. And we see that in the early church as well. We see this pattern emerge of attracting marginalised people and we see this in Acts chapter 8. Uh, Acts chapter 6, sorry. We see the early church faced with this problem of looking after too many widows. Because friends, Jesus and his followers always attract the marginalised. They always attract the marginalised. In history, we understand early church history that when uh, Emperor Constantine came to power, so came Christianity to the Roman Empire. That's been the prevailing view for a long, long time. Uh, the story goes that he had this vision before a big battle against his opponent and he painted the, the Greek letters of, of Christ on all the shields of his army, went into battle and won that battle and so gave the glory back to God and overnight the Roman Empire became a, a Christian state. Well, historians and sociologists are starting to question that now. They're actually saying that Constantine was just a good politician and he could see the political change coming to the empire and he got on the winner, which was Christianity. You see, the early church attracted marginalised people. When others would not look after their widows, the church was there. When young couples didn't want daughters because they needed sons to look after them, in their old age, and they put their daughters and abandoned their daughter, like baby daughters on the street. It was the Christians that looked after them. When plagues hit cities and people took off to escape the plagues, it was the church, the early church that stayed to look after the sick. And by doing that, over three centuries, they had become the most powerful political force in the empire. So much so that emperor after emperor tried to destroy them and Constantine, politically wise, said, I'm going to get on board with the winners. And hence the Roman Empire became Christian. Friends, 
if you're not attracting the marginalised people of your society, then there's something wrong. Because Jesus always attracted the marginalised. And the early church attracted the marginalised. We too, as his followers, need to attract the marginalised people, the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. Well, this passage continues with the appointment of deacons. And for whatever reason, uh, I don't know why, but we tend to make this passage about leadership structures, right? Uh, you know, if you're a good Baptist, and let me say I am a big B Baptist, just to, to be clear, I, I love the Baptist church. For a long time, uh, particularly in my young adult years, I would deny that I was a Baptist. No, I'm a Christian first. What's this Baptist thing? But one day I woke up and realized, no, actually, you are a Baptist, Cameron. You can't escape it. Uh, so I am a Baptist, but we use this passage right as a leadership structure passage. Well, the church needs deacons and elders and apostles and bishops and presbyters. You get where I'm going here, friends? If we used every passage that was in the Scriptures as a prescription on how we should structure our leadership, then we'd have a lot of levels of leaderships in the local church. It's interesting, back in Acts chapter 1, we don't use that as a prescriptive passage too. Do you know the passage I'm talking about? That They're wanting to appoint a 12th apostle and so what do they do? They cast lots, right? To work out who... We, we don't use that in church. Uh, or maybe you do. Is that how you elect leaders here, casting lots? We don't see that as prescriptive, right? And yet we see passages like this as prescriptive. Oh, they elected seven deacons, so we need to elect seven deacons. I actually think there's a more important question here, a more important message here, which is already up there. Uh, Go back, sorry, Jeremy. The more important question is, we need to be an expression of the gospel, both word and deed. That's the message for me in this passage. We need to be an expression of the gospel, both word and deed. Neither can be neglected. The apostles saw the importance of both. But you need to understand, there's no scriptures at this point. There's no seminaries where they could go train people to do the ministry of the word, to do the ministry of prayer. The apostles were it. They were it in terms of the ministry of the word. And yet they saw ministry to the marginalized as important and so they were getting distracted by that. So important was it that they were getting distracted by that. The problem had become so big that they're doing no ministry of the word. That They look at each other and say, well, we're the only ones who can do the ministry of the word here. We need to find faithful people of repute to look after what was also an important ministry, ministry to the marginalized. You see, we as the evangelical church in the past has have made it an either-or situation, haven't we? We've said you're either a church of the word or you're a church of the marginalized. And if you are a church of the marginalized, then you are liberal. But if you are a church of the word, then you are evangelical. Friends, that debate happened right throughout the 20th century. And it's false that it's either or, that you can't be either, you either got to be a church of the word or a church to the marginalized. You can't be both. That is false. And I know that view is false because I held that view for 35 years. The first 35 years of my life, I held that view that you could either be a church of the word or a church to the marginalized, that you couldn't do both. 
And yet we read here in Acts chapter 6 that they are a church for both. They are a church for the marginalised, looking after the widows, and they are a church of the word. It's both, friends. It's both. It's both word and deed. Even the Apostle Paul saw it. The book of Galatians, right? This is a book where Paul is saying to the church of Galatia that there is only one gospel. Don't let anyone tell you that there's any other gospel. There's only one gospel. You know, these Jews that are coming down and telling that you must be circumcised and you must follow the, jo- the Jewish laws, well, I want to preach an anathema on them. They, they can go to hell, Paul is literally saying, they can go to hell. There's only one gospel and the gospel is that Jesus has come that you might be restored. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the council in Jerusalem where they debated this question of what the new Gentile believers should have to do. Should the new Gentile believers follow our dietary laws? Should they have to be circumcised? Should they have to follow all the Jewish customs? And this is Paul's summary of that debate in chapter 2 of Galatians verse 10. They asked only one thing. Anyone know what that one thing was? That you remember the poor which I actually was really eager to do. This is the letter that states so clearly there is one, only one gospel message and everything else is false. An integral part of that gospel message, according to the early church, is that you remember the poor. Friends, it's integral to what Jesus preached when he was on earth, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. It was integral to what the early church preached. You must remember the poor because it's an integral part of the gospel message. The gospel message is that God brings restoration and renewal and wants to restore and make new. You know, I grew up in a church Uh, that preached all the time, just preach the gospel, brother. That's all you need to do, preach the gospel. And I truly believe that. But there's a huge part of the gospel we're missing, friends. Yes, God created us. Yes, we turned our backs on him and rebelled against him. Yes, he sent his son Jesus into this world that you and I might be directed back to God. Yes, Jesus died on the cross that the power of sin might be broken in my life. Yes, He was raised from the dead, that if I place my trust in him, I too can beat death. But the huge part that we miss, and this will really blow your minds, the huge part that we miss, he actually invites us now to be a part of his kingdom's work. Friends, does that not just blow your minds? I know who I am as a person. The wretched person I am. And yet the God of this universe, the God of this universe invites me in to be a part of his kingdom's plan. Friends, when I think about it, that just blows my mind. Why why would he do that? And yet he does. Word and deed. Word and deed. Ministry of the word. Ministry to the marginalised. Ronald Sider, in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, writes these words, Think of the impact 
if evangelical giving to empower the poor here and abroad became so substantial that the first thought that came to secular people's minds when they heard the word evangelical was, oh yes, they are the people who are dramatically reducing poverty around the world. Richard Lovelace and J. Irwin Orr, both evangelical historians of revival movements, point out that evangelism and concern for the poor have gone hand in hand in the great revivals of the past. Friends, you get it. Do you get it here? If we want to be relevant in our world again, if we want to be relevant in our world again, yes, we need to preach the good news, but we need to show it as well. Be concerned for those who are marginalised, not only here, but abroad as well. Imagine if the evangelical church got so mobilised that we were able to wipe out poverty in the world. What a message that would send to our world that sees us as irrelevant. I was, uh, as I mentioned earlier in this sermon, I was in the States for a few months. I did a pastor's exchange and I, I led uh, Grace Baptist Church and on my days off, I would fly right around the country uh, to, to do research for my doctorate and then the rest of the week would lead this church and the pastor of Grace Baptist Church uh, led my church when I was in Kiama for a few months. We did pastor's exchange. It was a fantastic experience. But this church... Uh, you, you may not be able to make out that figure there, but that figure there in the front of the stairs is a homeless man. And I, I purposely chose this picture because it stated so much about what Grace Baptist Church was about. Um, you, you can't really see it, but behind those scrubs uh, in, the, in the bottom left-hand corner there, there's a whole other section of the building. And the city council of San Jose rents that off the church and they run a homeless shelter during the day for mentally ill and homeless people in the streets. Uh, San Jose, uh, Grace Baptist Church in San Jose is downtown. I never knew what downtown meant until I went there. It means you're basically right in the CBD, right in the middle of the CBD. San Jose University is right across the road and and the council is literally 500 metres away from where the church is located. And every week, hundreds of homeless people and mentally ill people uh, would come to that homeless shelter. And I found myself spending a lot of time down there. And and sadly, sadly, I was the only one from the church down there. And so I challenged the leadership team of that church. I said, why aren't you down there? You know, churches in Australia, we are so desperate to find ways to connect with our community. You've got your community coming to you. It's right downstairs. Why aren't you down there? And one of the leaders quite rightly said, it won't grow our church. He's right. You know, homeless and mentally ill won't grow your budgets, won't grow your church. And I said, you're right, but it will grow God's kingdom. Friends, I I think as a church in the West, we need to get beyond church growth. We need to start focusing on God's kingdom again to the marginalised, to the poor, to proclaim good news to those who desperately need it to the blind, to the marginalised, to the oppressed, to the prisoner. Don't hear me wrong, friends. I I see what you're doing as a church uh, through Kairos. I see what you're doing as a church through your your partnerships with many other agencies. I know what you do through us at Baptist World Aid. But we need to continue to do that. We need to continue to strive, not only strive to do that, but see that as an integral part of the gospel message. 
integral part of who we are as a church. The church needs to express the gospel word and deed. It's, it's something that our partners overseas strive for every single uh, day. You know, in Lebanon right now, thousands of Syrian refugees are giving their lives to Jesus. Isn't that great news, friends? Thousands of Syrian refugees, they're coming out of that really oppressive state of Syria. They're, they're fleeing for their lives. Lebanon, who has every reason to hate them. Syria was an invading force for 20 years in Lebanon, between 1976 and 2005. And yet five years later, these Syrian refugees are fleeing their own conflict and the church in Lebanon has embraced them and loved them and shown them in word and deed God's love. And Syrians by the thousands are coming to know Jesus. One pastor reported church growth in one year from seven to 700. I've heard that hundredfold somewhere in the Gospels. We are seeing Syrian refugees give their life to Jesus. In Bangladesh, the Bangladesh Baptist Churches Fellowship, the convention that we partner with, one of our partners in Bangladesh, is growing in huge ways. This is a repressive Muslim state. And yet back in 1980, there was 32 churches in Bangladesh. In, in this particular Baptist convention. In 1990, that number grew to 200. Now there are over 500 churches in that convention. Just to put that into perspective, friends, our own association here in New South Wales and ACT, we have about 350 churches. They have surpassed us. And I think they'll get to a 1,000 churches before we get to a 1,000 churches in 2050. In Nepal, INF work in 50 rural community groups and in every single one of those rural community groups there's been a church planted because our partners, INF, are showing the love of God and preaching the good news about Jesus. You can help. You are helping. Uh, many of you are already helping, but you can help our partners uh, through child sponsorship, friends. You can help our partners uh, show the love of God through word and deed. You know, as as uh, Peter mentioned this morning, you are number ninth in the country in terms of child sponsorship support. Child sponsorship support. You know, if you took out 10 new sponsorships today, you'd be number seven in a, in the country. If you took out 20 new sponsorships today, you'd be number three in the country. You'd only be behind Nawi Baptist Church here in New South Wales and Sindal Baptist Church in Victoria if you took out 20 today. If you took out 137, <laughs> you'd be number one in the country. Nawi is a very, very generous church. But the point is that if we want to be relevant again, friends, we need to, to practice what we preach. We're preaching good news you know, we're proclaiming good news to the poor, to the marginalised, to the prisoner. And we need to show that through our deeds as well as the word. Friends, in, in a world uh, that we are, are growing up in, uh, you know, there's been such rapid change that not only are typewriters becoming obsolete, a computer mouse is now becoming obsolete as more and more swipe technology becomes available. It's, it's, it's hard to believe uh, over the last 20 years the rapid change that we've seen and, and it's hard to believe the social upheaval that I've seen in my lifetime 
LBGTI rights, with feminism, with same-sex marriage legislation going through. And the church is finding itself more and more and more on the margins. And you know what, friends, I'm hearing a lot of Christians panic about that. I'm not panicked about that. I actually think that gives us a wonderful opportunity. gives us a wonderful opportunity to discover who we are as a church. See, I'm not sure we were ever meant to be in power. I I watch Jesus and his ministry, and where's his ministry? It's on the margins. And I look at the early church, and I look at their ministry. Where's their ministry? It's on the margins, friends. And after three centuries of working on the margins, the church had become so powerful that the emperor had no other opportunity, no no other option, but to proclaim himself Christian and Rome a Christian state. You know, in a rapidly changing world where we are finding ourselves more and more irrelevant can't go past what the early church did. And the early church attracted the marginalised. How how are we going to attract the marginalised? How are we going to work with the marginalised in our world? And the early church was all about expressing the gospel, both word and deed. I don't know about you, friends, but that's the kind of church I want to be involved with. A church that takes seriously the gospel message of restoration, of reconciliation, of preaching the good news of Jesus in both word and deed. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you came to a world that was marginalised from you. Lord, without you, we, we are lost. And yet you have come that we might have life, that we might be restored, that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, the early church, you and the early church, attracted the marginalised. And Lord, I pray that as we find ourselves more and more marginalised in the West, that we might find those Christian roots again, that we might seek out to minister to the marginalised, to the down and out, to those who are forgotten. Lord, as we seek to minister to them, that it would not just be about speaking words of life, which is so important, but that we would show that love also through our deeds, that we would accept, that we would restore, that we would be a part of your kingdom's work. Lord, it does blow my mind that you who are the kin of this universe would choose to invite me into your work. And yet, Lord God, you do that. We thank you that you have invited us to be a part of your kingdom's work here and now. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we might see what it is that you would have us do, that we might bring you honour and glory, and that your kingdom would truly be extended through this church. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.